And it's now time to cross live to our colleagues at the BBC in the UK for a look at what's happening on that side of the globe. And joining me is Jonathan Freewin. Welcome and good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Crystal. Jonathan, so later today, a parliamentary vote is scheduled in Hungary that's likely to approve um, Sweden's bid to join NATO. Tell us more about that. Well, it's been almost two years since Sweden applied to join the NATO military alliance in the wake of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The national nationalist government of Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has delayed holding a vote on Sweden's membership for more than 18 months, which has caused quite a bit of tension with its allies. But finally last week, the government in Hungary announced Parliament would vote on ratifying the bid today. It takes unanimous consent from all NATO members <coughs> excuse me, to admit a new member. And keep in mind that Turkey had previously been holding out on Sweden membership of the military alliance <clears throat> over concerns about what it saw as Sweden's failure to prevent Quran burnings in Sweden and also what Turkey called Sweden's support to Kurdish separatists. But that dispute got resolved after Sweden introduced tougher anti-terrorism laws last June, making it illegal to give financial or logistical help to terrorist groups. Turkey's parliament finally ratified Sweden's prospective NATO membership in January, leaving Hungary the only holdout. Hungary has previously accused Sweden of having a hostile attitude. That's seen as a response to Stockholm's accusations that the Hungarian government has been backsliding on the Euro European Union's democratic principles. But there appeared to be a thawing in relations last month when Viktor Orban invited his Swedish counterpart, Ulf Christensen, to Budapest for talks, stating in a letter that a more intensive dialogue could contribute to reinforcing trust. Um, and here we are. On that, we of course also know that um, Sweden supplying military equipment to Hungary is a factor in these recent developments. Is that the case? Yes, that's right. There's a precedent for this, with Turkey lifting its objections to Swedish NATO membership. The country made its support for Stockholm's membership contingent on the approval of the sale of F-16 fighter jets from the United States. Hours after Turkey's ratification, the Biden administration announced its approval of the $23 billion sale. And last Friday, uh, Sweden and Hungary agreed for Hungary to acquire Swedish-built military equipment. Analysts point out that Sweden has a strong defence industry and that Viktor Orban was seeking to gain the maximum leverage from this NATO membership delay. So the latest deal involves Hungary acquiring Swedish ball-built Gripen fighter jets. Hungary currently leases 14 of those from Sweden and had expressed its intention to expand the fleet. The two national leaders announced an agreement on Hungary acquiring four more of those when they met in Budapest on Friday. All of that said, there are still some holdouts to Sweden's NATO membership in the Hungarian parliament who are angry at Sweden for helping to block EU funds for the country. So it still remains to be seen whether the vote later today goes in Sweden's favour, though it does look very likely. And assuming it does, Sweden's NATO membership could be formalised at a ceremony later in the week. Jonathan, um, really historic. Um, but of course, I just saw uh, uh, something on X about NATO also saying that Ukraine will be part of NATO, which I'm sure will also come out of um, the conversation later today. But turning to the World Trade Organization, they're having a ministerial conference in Abu Dhabi for this week. First, remind us of the WTO and of course, what's on the agenda at this ministerial meeting. Well, the WTO and its predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, were set up to try and liberalise world trade by reducing export taxes or tariffs and eliminating other trade barriers such as quotas on how much of a particular good can be imported from different countries. The WTO was formed almost three decades ago, is headquartered in Geneva and has 164 member states representing more than 98% of global trade. Perhaps the most significant moment in WTO history was when China joined back in 2001. It really opened up the Chinese economy 
economy and brought about a revolution in global trade, enabling China to become what many refer to as the workshop of the world. But the repercussions of that development are still being felt today, and what seemed like an inexorable march towards the liberalising of trade and ongoing globalisation has arguably gone into reverse in the last few years. The pandemic focused minds in many countries around the world, and moves were undertaken to bring manufacture of key goods back on shore after years of sourcing things from overseas, which came under strain back in 2020. And you'll remember President Trump imposed a range of tariffs on Chinese imports starting in 2018, seeking to protect US markets, which the Biden administration has largely kept in place. If re-elected, President Trump promises a fresh round of tariffs on Chinese imports, which it's worth keeping in mind end up being paid by American consumers. Now, you asked about the agenda for this week's ministerial meeting. Um, these meetings happen once every two years, and top of the agenda is a package of reforms to address the way the WTO adjudicates trade disputes. The top WTO court has been out of action for more than four years, with the US opposed to new judge appointments. That means that billions of dollars of trade disputes remain unresolved. There's a proposal on the table towards reform there, but it's thought that progress is unlikely ahead of November's US presidential election. Then there are ongoing talks around fishing subsidies. Environmentalists argue that knocking away billions of dollars in fishing subsidies is the most important thing that states can do to help reverse declining fish stocks around the world. Now, there was a deal struck at the last ministerial meeting in Geneva in 2022 banning some subsidies, including for illegal fishing, but negotiators left thorny issues around other subsidies unresolved. It's thought that China, itself the world's biggest fishing subsidizer, may seek to be given a carve out on fishing subsidies designed for developing members. And then there's a bid to extend a moratorium on applying duties to electronic transmissions. India is among the holdouts on that. That moratorium is due to expire this year. And if it's not extended, analysts say countries could introduce customs duties on items like film downloads. So there's plenty for the negotiators to get their teeth stuck into this week, I think. Fantastic, Jonathan. Of course, I've been following the WTO because we have a Nigerian leading the organization. Um, so now we're turning to Iran. They're heading to the polls on Friday. It's a parliamentary elections. What can we expect? I mean, we of course know, um, what, you know, what's happening in the Middle East and Iran being a very important play in all of this. What's the likely impact of the election? Well, this is the first election in Iran since the death in custody of Masa Amini in 2022, which triggered nationwide protests across Iran. You'll remember that she was alleged to have not been wearing her hijab or headscarf in accordance with the rules and was being held by the country's morality police. Eyewitnesses reported that she was severely beaten, though the authorities claimed she died of a heart attack. So that's the backdrop. Meanwhile, large billboards and election posters have sprung up in Tehran and other cities announcing the start of campaigning last week, urging people to take part. More than 15,000 candidates have been approved by those in charge of the vetting process to compete for the legislature's 290 seats, according to the official IRNA news agency. Now, most of the candidates, particularly in small constituencies, are said to be doctors, engineers, civil servants and teachers who are not affiliated with any political group. But according to reformist politicians, only between 20 and 30 of the reformist candidates who submitted applications have been approved to run in the election. Iran's current parliament, elected four years ago, has been dominated by conservatives and ultra-conservatives after reformists and moderates were disqualified. Yes, and then um, finally we also see that the formal campaign period for Mexico's presidential election gets underway this weekend. So who's running and what are the issues? 
Well, the election itself is scheduled for June this year and the incumbent president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is constitutionally barred from seeking a second term. So that means that, barring something fairly extraordinary, Mexico is set to have its first female president. There are actually three candidates, one of whom is male, but he's polling at a fraction of the other two contenders. The first of those is Claudia Scheinbaum, a former Mexico City mayor who's considered the frontrunner, currently polling around 64%. She's a representative of the current president's Morena party. She's a climate scientist turned politician, age 61, and is widely believed to have been the preferred choice of Andres Manuel López Obrador. She presents herself as a continuity candidate and looks like his benefit from Mr. López Obrador's enduring popularity. But analysts say her victory is not guaranteed. Her main rival is also 61 years old, the computer engineer and businesswoman uh, Suchito Galvez, who's backed by a three-party coalition, including the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, which dominated Mexico's politics until around the year 2000. Growing up poor as a child, she helped her family sell street food. Uh, Ms. Galvez has previously said that her father, an indigenous Otomi schoolteacher, was an abusive alcoholic. She wears indigenous clothing, uses colloquial language, and is often seen cycling around Mexico City. She's said to have a quick wit, down-to-earth demeanor, and she's currently polling at around 31%. And then completing the electoral lineup is Jorge Alvarez Menez of Mexico's Small Citizens Movement Party. He's polling at just around 5% currently and was the campaign manager for Samuel Garcia, who had been the candidate for Mr. Menez's party until last December. Mm, excellent. Thank you so much, Jonathan Freeman from the BBC, giving us an update on what's happening um, in Europe, in Iran, um, an important meeting of the WTO. And then lastly, the Mexican president.